Good morning, church. How is everyone this morning? Uh, if, if you do not recognize me, if this is your first time with us, my name is Cody King. I'm the Edgewood Campus Pastor, and I uh, just want to say welcome to all of you this morning. I want to say welcome to those that are joining us online, those that are joining us in Edgewood this morning as well. Uh, it is wonderful to share in God's Word with you once again. If you have your Bibles, uh, we're going to be uh, finishing chapter 14 this morning. Last week we began uh, chapter 14 and... Um, the title of the teaching last week was Liberty and Legalism in the Unity of the Two. And Paul began to address this issue within the body that existed then and most certainly even exists now is that you have believers and people that come to Christ and become part of His church, but oftentimes in that we bring along with us our values, our preferences, our traditions that we had before we came to Christ, and we can bring those things with us. We can still kind of hold on to what we believe to be true at one point as we come into a new life with Christ. And he began to address two people. He began to address the weak in faith versus the strong in faith. The strong in faith were those that understood the freedom that they have in Christ, is that they were free from all of those old things. They're free from ceremony, from ritual, from tradition, and they have freedom in Christ uh, that exist in the way they move about their life with Him. But the weak in faith, not that they have weak faith, but they have a weak understanding of the gospel and that they're still bound to some of those things. And He began to talk through for us what that looks like in the life of a believer, to prefer one another in the midst of those preferential matters and how we should respond. We closed last week our time with the understanding that we're all growing and maturing at different levels in our walk with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul said there so that we're all being transformed to the same image from one degree of glory to another. So on the spectrum between new believer in Christ to mature believer or, or from the strong in faith to the weak in faith, we're all not in the same place. We're in different places, but with that lens when we view one another in such a way, then we are enabled to give one another, one another preference um, in all matters of opinion. Now, we did land with, when it comes to matters of sin and salvation, we do need to not just bend on those things. There is truth as it pertains to salvation, sin, and morality uh, that we do, do judge on. But when it comes to opinions, also don't quarrel over such things. Prefer one another. But this morning, as we get to the second half of chapter 14, the title of the message this morning is Stumbling Blocks and Stepping Stones in the Disunity of Those Two. So Paul tells us to take caution, not to put stumbling blocks in front of believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, but he spends the rest of this chapter outlining for us what that looks like. So verse 13 of Romans 14, Paul says, Therefore, now what is this particular therefore? Therefore, if you look back just a couple few verses, verses 10 through 12, Paul tells us, he says, why do you pass judgment or why do you despise one another? He says, are you not going to all stand before the judgment seat of God? In verse 12, he says that every one of us will give an account of ourselves to the Lord. Not an account of each one another, but we will give an account of ourselves to the Lord. So therefore, he draws a conclusion from that statement. He says this, let us not then pass judgment on one another 
any longer. Now, I note any longer there in the text because the reason for him writing is to address something that is happening and was happening in the church in the first century. And he's writing and he's correcting them that, but it's lands in God's word for us today because the same thing that existed then existed for us now. But Paul tells us his exhortation is, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. Stop doing that thing. And here's what you should do. The second half of 13, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. And it's interesting, the word for pass judgment and decide is the same Greek word. Crino, the same word, and negatively it can be used as past judgment. Paul uses it in verse 4, he uses it in verse 10, and in verse 13a, the first part of 13, to mean past judgment in a negative sense. But with a play on words, Paul illustrates for us what we are rather to do, and that is to decide. You and I will always make judgments. Whenever we encounter anyone, believer or non-believer, that understands or just has heard at some point, aren't you supposed to not be passing judgment on people? Yes, God's Word does tell us not to pass judgment, but to put it in context, we will always, church, be making judgments on things. How do we discern right from wrong without making judgment? So Paul says here, in the negative sense, don't pass judgment, but instead, crino, same word, decide for yourself. Determine not to do two things. Or one of two things. One, he says, do not put a stumbling block in front of a believer. Now, stumbling block in the Greek, it's proskama. It literally means, wait for it, a stumbling block. I like to do word studies. This one tickled me. I'm not going to lie. Man, what does proskama mean? Stumbling block. Okay, all right. How do I expound on that? Stumbling block. I've got a little something for you. But it's an obstacle in the way of someone, right? Where they could stub their toe, trip, and fall down, right? Or fall over. That's the idea of a stumbling block. But a deeper implication of that for us, and the reason why Paul uses this particular word, is that in the spiritual reality, when it comes to spiritual matters, it's anything that causes someone to stumble or fall into specifically sin. And when it comes to sin, oftentimes we don't want to treat sin like sin really is. We want to treat it like a powder puff. It's really not that harmful versus what I've, a good friend or brother has said before in the past. We should be treating it like a rattlesnake. We just don't walk up to rattlesnakes and pick them up trying try and pet them. No, it's a rattlesnake. We avoid that thing because we understand what that is. But oftentimes we don't really wrap our mind around what sin is. So when it comes to not putting a stumbling block, something that would make someone fall, if we understand what they would be falling into, which is sin, there's more of an implication there is, is what we should not be doing. But deeper still than that, figuratively, figuratively, in Greek society, when this word stumbling block would be used, it's for an occasion to apostasy. What apostasy means is a falling away. When it comes to sin, the, 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 the deeper issue at hand is that if we place a stumbling block in front of someone and they trip and fall, they could trip and fall in such a way to where they fire, fall away entirely. Now there are some salvific implications there and a topic that could be discussed later when it comes to apostasy, but if that exists where there could be a reason or an occasion for someone to fall into sin in such a way that they fall away or they walk away from the faith, that's the seriousness that we approach when we talk about being a stumbling block. So oftentimes we don't fully grasp what's at stake. 
And we could say, oh, they just tripped and fell down. But hey, they got up, they dusted themselves off, and they kept on moving. But the question is, what if they didn't get up? Which is the second thing that Paul tells us to decide not to do. is either be a stumbling block or a hindrance. The word hindrance is scandalon. This is where we get the word scandal. And my study is a little bit deeper than just not putting a stumbling block. But this is where we get scandal. Think about scandals. What happens when people fall into or get caught in scandals? Many difficult things can befall someone who gets caught in a scandal. But literally, the word means a trap stick. So it's the stick that is placed to trigger a trap or a snare. So if you've ever, if you ever tried to trap an animal before, you know, and a little bunny rabbit, you know, or... A, uh, a squirrel or something larger, wherever it may be, you would have like a stick or a tree or something that is bent over, a string is tied to that thing, and it's affixed to a snare. The string is looped on the ground, and then there is a stick that holds that down. And the idea is when something comes along, it steps on that stick, and all of a sudden it, the snare grabs around their foot and swings back and catches them. That's the idea. Now the question is, and for illustrative pur- purchase pur- purposes, Picture with me, what happens, say, to an animal or an individual that gets ensnared or trapped? Things tend to remain where they got trapped. But now imagine you're a free, willy-nilly, happy-go-lucky bunny, and you're just popping along. And then all of a sudden, you trigger this scandal on that's been set. What does that bunny do when it's ensnared? It goes crazy. Absolutely crazy. I don't know if you've ever seen it before. When an animal gets caught in a snare, they go bonkers. Every which way they can, fighting as they can to get away from this trap that they've been ensnared in. But alas, they cannot. They have been trapped. They have been ensnared. Now imagine you caring for little soft, funny, fluffy bunnies. I like little furry critters. But imagine you see this bunny and it is just flailing, going crazy because it has been ensnared and your heart hurts for him. Well, I need to help this bunny out. I got to get over here and free this out. Or say it's a squirrel. Let's say it's a squirrel at this instance, a little cute, cuddly squirrel. And it's going crazy and you want to help this squirrel out and you approach this squirrel and you're going to bend down and you're just going to grab a hold of, hey, I got you, little guy, and you're going to pull that thing off and it's going to run free. Is that how it's going to go? Mm-mm. No. If you really sought to do such a thing, you are going to be hurt by that squirrel as it goes crazy trying to get out of this trap that it's been caught in. Such can be the same for the believer. When it comes to sin, for anyone that spent a lot of time in ministry, and it doesn't have to be the pastor, it doesn't have to be the leadership or the staff, anyone that spent time in ministry and caring for people in their sin, But when people get caught in habitual sin or they fall into such a sin and they're trying to get out, they're going every which way, but they cannot escape it. But when someone steps in and attempts to help that, there's always parts and bits of it that get on you. It can be be very difficult for someone that falls into sin to get out of that sin, but it can also be equally as difficult for someone to try and help them in that. Church, that is what we're supposed to do. But before that, what really gets me here is the things that believers do to one another to cause someone to fall into such a thing that some other believer 
would come along and seek to help, but you've wounded two people in that process. But then say no one comes along. What eventually happens to that animal caught in that trap? They exhaust themselves. They run out of steam. I don't know the mental capacity of a rabbit. Imagine it's really small. But at some point, they're going to become so tired, so weary, so given out that they just lay there. And eventually, they're not going to be able to get water. They're not going to be fed. And if left there, they're going to eventually die. Such is the seriousness of placing stumbling blocks or setting traps for believers. Here's an example for the believer. Come off the animal illustration. Let's get to people. Say you're, you have a new believer. They've come to Christ and they're trying to discern or seeking to learn what's appropriate for a believer. What's appropriate in the life of a Christian. What things can and cannot be done. They don't fully understand the freedom that they have, but they're trying to discern some of that. And then say you have a long-standing believer, but a reckless believer. A reckless believer who understands their freedom and likes to drink. But in their own weakness, they go a little bit too far often and they find themselves intoxicated and they drink to drunkenness. But you have this new believer who's absorbing all this, seeking to learn and understand, and they're looking at this reckless believer. But this reckless believer acting on the freedom, well, I have freedom in Christ and it's okay, I have grace, I'm going to be forgiven for this drunkenness and thing. But they have essentially set a trap for this new believer. As the new believer is trying to discern what it is that, where's my freedom end, but they see an older believer doing such a thing. They've set a trap for them. Verse 14, Paul goes on. He says, I know, I know and, and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus. You can know where his persuasion comes from. I am, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. Now, if a believer believes a certain thing to be sinful, is what he's saying, whether that belief is, is wrong or right, if that believer believes the thing that they're doing to be wrong, it is now wrong for them. And to do the thing they believe to be wrong proves to be sin, is what Paul is getting at here. So the guilt that follows. So for you and I, when it comes to laying a stumbling block or acting on our freedom... We don't need to do that thing. But if there's something that we believe to be unclean and we do that thing, whether it's clean or not, Paul is saying, you're in the wrong. And the guilt that we feel gives us away. We betrayed our conscience in that. Now, you've probably heard before that money is the root of all evil. Anybody ever heard that? Right, love of. That is oftentimes one of the most misquoted scriptures in your Bible. Is money is the root of all evil. Money is not the root of all evil. Money is an inanimate object. It, can't, it has no will of its own. It can't decide to do anything. Money is used by people. So it's the love of money that is the root of all evil. But in context, to keep it here, Paul talks about eating and drinking. So alcohol is not evil. A bar is not an evil place. But the abuse of alcohol is evil. Evil people may frequent a bar. That doesn't mean that anybody that goes into a bar is an evil person. But evil people may go there and do those things. But it's all a condition of who. It is our own motivation in what we do with those things. So it's not money. It's not alcohol. It's not a place. Those things are irrelevant to what we do 
for or with that thing or why we go to that place. So a mature believer should have no fear of these things. We're going to get back to stumbling blocks and hindrances here in a minute. But a true, mature believer should not fear them at all. But however, if you have a weak believer, a new believer, or someone that struggles with alcoholism, someone that may be halfway through regeneration because of their alcoholism, to them to fear alcohol and fear a bar would be wise. And you and I as strong believers, if so, should not blame, wouldn't fault, wouldn't question that believer if we understand who they are. If we understand their struggle, they have a proper fear of alcohol and a proper fear of a bar. Because they know if they find themselves to be drinking that or find themselves to be in that place, they are prone to fall back to that same sin. So what does the mature brother or sister need to do? Encourage them in that, not to despise them for their lack of understanding of their freedom. You see the picture Paul's getting at? But now here's a question. But what if the strong believer, what if the strong mature believer were to invite this weaker brother or sister over for dinner and sit at table with them with a bottle of wine? Because they're in their house. I'm at home. I understand my freedom. I want to have a bottle of wine with my dinner. But I have a weak brother here. I want to partake. I don't want to be a stumbling block. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to try and convince this person of their freedom. Hey, here's what your freedom is. This really isn't bad. It's not sinful. You can have a drink. What if you have this weaker brother or sister that sees alcohol as the thing that led them to a sin that they're trying to come out of? Paul gives an answer as to why this is a problem in verse 15. Paul says, For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, he says, you are no longer walking in love. The word grieve there, it means to make sorrowful or hurt them. It's emotional. It's not a physical harm that we do in that. If we are to invite someone over for dinner and they're a weaker brother or sister and they have a struggle with something, let's not put a bottle of wine in front of them because you may grieve them. To them, they may view that bottle of wine as sinful because of the effect that it's had in their life and they look at you and see you as a mature believer you shouldn't be doing that. That's a, that's a sinful thing. That's a bad thing. And you've grieved them and you've grieved their heart. That's not walking in love and caring for them. Back to last week. Who should be the one to defer in matters of preference? It should be the strong. The strong should be the one to sit at table and, and invite someone over. And though they may desire and know their freedom to have a glass of wine with their meal, to not even put a bottle of wine on the table to care for their brother. That's the idea. But he says, don't allow them to be grieved by what you eat. Then he says this, by what you eat, he says, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Now he digs a little deeper for us. He says, don't destroy the one for whom Christ died. Don't destroy the one for whom his blood was shed, as we just sang. Christ's blood shed for that brother or sister. He says, don't destroy them. The word destroy... In the New Testament, it's often used to indicate eternal destruction or perishing. John 3, 16, he says, For God so loved the world that whoever believes in him, God so loved the world, he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, would not be destroyed, but have eternal life. It's the idea, but in context here, it's not so much eternal perishing, but it's a ruin or loss. So when he says, he says, don't, don't do something in such a way that it would destroy the one for whom Christ died... He says, don't do something that would devastate their spiritual well-being. 
Don't do something that would devastate their spiritual growth. Because if we look at them, remember, we're, we're not on the same place in the spectrum of growth. And if we understand that, don't do anything that would hinder that growth wherever a person may be on it. Because the reality is that they're not likely going to be in the same exact space that you are. But how serious is this to the Lord? In Matthew 18.6, Jesus says this. I don't have this for you on your screen, but you should note it. Jesus says, 18.6, and Matthew says, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... He says, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and thrown into the depth of the sea. Now, that's serious. Now, Jesus is not saying literally that if you cause someone to sin, that you ought to be thrown in the sea. That's, he's speaking hyperbolically, but to get his point across of the seriousness with which it is to cause someone to fall into sin. It would be better off if you were drowned in the sea than to cause someone to sin. So I don't want to be drowned in the sea. I know that I'm not going to be, but if that's how serious Jesus approaches this topic, then I need to approach it the same way and seek to understand where my brothers and sisters are at and my matters of freedom and the things that I would prefer to do. So we should be walking in love. 1 Corinthians 13, 5, Paul says there, he says that love does not insist in its own way. Love always gives away and it gives itself away. Verse 16 and 17, he says, so do, so do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. He says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So the kingdom of God, where our focus should be, not on this world, but on His, his kingdom that is surely coming. He said, It's not a matter of eating and drinking. But righteousness, peace, and joy, where do those things exist? Or where do they come from? In Matthew 15, 11, Jesus says this. He says, is, he says, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. So the problem where sin lies is internally. It's not so much externally. So it's, it's not the external act that proves to be sinful. It is always the thought of action and where it is initiated. And that is in our hearts and in our minds. But sin never begins as an action. It ends there. The thing that matters for you and I as believers is where that sin begins. And it always begins inside. It's a condition of our heart and our mind. That is why chapter 12, verse 1, Paul says... Therefore, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you, I beseech you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform to the patterns of the world, but be transformed by renewal of your mind. Where all of these things begin is within our mind and our heart. And the more we understand our heart with our mind, the more we see clearly on how to move and how to act and how to walk in love and care for brothers and sisters. So he says, so do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. So the freedom that you understand in Christ, that is what you would regard as good. But when it is spoken of as evil, that is when you act on that freedom without regard to a brother or sister. And you end up grieving or worse, destroying one another. That's the idea. Verse 18, he says, whoever thus um, serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So for you and I, church, the actions that we should be concerned with 
are those of service. Again, I will go back to it again and again and again, as should you, Romans 12, verse 1 and 2. What began Paul's exhortation, we understand God's mercy. This is what we do with it. We're in chapter 4 of Paul telling us about that, but it began with chapter 12, verse 1, that you can always note and go back to. Thus, whoever serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. And that service comes out of a righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, not in eating and drinking. This is the distinction that Paul's making. It is not what we put in, it is what comes out of us. And what comes out of us is a work of God's righteousness, His peace, and His joy. It is from His Holy Spirit. And then he says, those that are acceptable to God, they're approved then by men. So instead of being spoken of as evil, because we're not practicing or we're not doing things in love with the freedoms that we have, he says the way that they're approved by men is when we serve the Lord in an acceptable manner. And the word for approved there, it's the verb form. No, it's, it's, it's the adjective dokimos. It's describing how we're to be approved by men, but it's approved with considerable examination. It's the watching world. It's the world is intently looking at God's people and watching them. The world is looking for something to have against you and I as believers. Daily, moment by moment, they're watching the church and they're looking for something to find that's wrong so that they say, hey, you're wrong and I'm right. I don't have to do what you say. Quit judging me is the idea. But the way we find approval is that they would look on intently. They would see us serving one another, giving preference to one another. Verse 19, so then, again, he's drawing a conclusion. Every time you see so then, he's drawing a conclusion of what he just said. He says, so then, let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding then. Our focus should, be, should change from preferential matters to matters of spiritual growth and maturity. And those matters are righteousness, peace, joy, as he says, love. The rest of the fruit of the Spirit is patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are the things that are external that people should see in you and I. The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. These are the matters. These are the actions. These are the things that should come out of you and I. And Paul says we should pursue them. In the Greek, it's diako. It's metaphorically, it's to seek after something earnestly. It's to earnestly endeavor to acquire something. A negative, literal interpretation of this could be to run, with, run to something in order to persecute that thing. To have it in mind to find something, to get to something, get your hands on something to harm that thing. Paul uses this word in Acts 22 of himself as he testifies or shares his testimony. He says, I persecuted this way to the death binding and delivering to prison both men and women. So Paul's own story, his testimony, when his name was Saul before his conversion to Paul, he persecuted the way. He pursued Christians with such veracity in order to catch them and to harm them, to persecute them. But Paul, his play on words, again, is in his conversion, in his new life in Christ. He uses the same word which described himself to pursue Christians, to destroy them. He says, now you should pursue with that same level of veracity the things of his kingdom. Not eating and drinking, but of righteousness, joy, and peace. Seek for things that make for peace and mutual upbuilding. And pursuing these changed church, this is what allows you and I to give one another breathing room in matters of preference. 
so that we don't feel the tension of walking on eggshells around one another because we have different opinions. The goal of the message and Paul's teaching and his word isn't to create a situation to where we have preferences and we understand that, but we walk around holding those in so tightly because we don't want to offend anybody. That's not the idea. But if our focus changes, not on ourselves and our own preferences, but to the preferences of others, then we find breathing room in what we would like to do. And we trust one another to share those opinions. And if we trust one another to share those opinions without fear of being judged or despised, church, that's what the world does. You don't have to look far. Look at your social media account. There's judgment and despising everywhere. That is what marks Satan's world, not God's. God's world is marked by peace, mutual upbuilding, love, righteousness, joyfulness, giving preference to one another. That is the difference that we should make. That's how we should look different to the watching world. That's how we find approval for men. Instead of having God be spoken of as evil. So he says, verse 20, do not now, exhortation, very clear exhortation here. It's imperative that he says, do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble in what, by what he eats. 1 Corinthians 10, 23 and 24, Paul says, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. He says, All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Again, we're to seek, pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. But he says, Not all things build up. So he says, he concludes, Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Remember from a few weeks ago, if you were with us, who's our neighbor? Our neighbor is everyone else. Our neighbor is the world who needs God's salvation. So when Paul says, do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God, what is the work of God? The work of God is the salvation of this world that needs him. It's the reconciliation of this world to their Father in heaven. That is his work And that work begins to be destroyed whenever we don't give preference. So he says, do not, for the sake of food, destroy that. Now, it's a different word for destroy from earlier. This word means to dissolve or disunite what has been joined together. So metaphorically, it's to overthrow or render vain. It's to deprive of success. You and I, no one on this planet will effectually destroy God's work. That's not going to happen. But what you and I can do is hinder that work in an individual. When we cause individual, when we cause brothers and sisters to fall or stumble or to fall in a trap that has been set, we render them ineffective in God's work. We disunify. We become disjointed in God's work. And we don't move forward. That's, why you, that's where you find a stagnant church that is dying and not moving forward or not growing. And most often you will find people that are inward and not outward in their faith. They're not giving preference. They're doing what's easy for them. And they destroy the work of God. Now Chuck Swindoll, he notes three practical reminders in the following verses. We have three more verses in verse 21. He said, It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. He says to be considerate. Recall, everything indeed is clean and all things are lawful, but not all things build up. So we should know the difference between those two and not denying ourselves our own freedom that we understand at every turn or every time we're in a public place. 
Don't forego your preferences. It was for freedom that Christ set us free, Galatians 5. But verse 13 of Galatians 5, Paul says, Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. We should be considerate of other people. Now, the challenge is discerning that, is it not? It can kind of be exhausting as we think through this teaching. And what Paul's saying, I understand my freedom. I have this freedom to do these things wherever I may do these things. But I don't really have the freedom to do those things because I'm supposed to be mindful of everybody else and what their preferences are. But I don't know everybody else. I don't know where I'm at. So it's hard to discern some of those things. When, where, how we're to give up our freedoms. Amen? I mean, let's acknowledge that difficulty. You want to go to Texas Roadhouse in Terrell because it's open now? Praise the Lord. But if you want, to go to, you want to go to Texas Roadhouse, you want to have a beer or a drink with your steak, you understand the freedom that you have in Christ. Again, it's not a matter of sin or morality or, or indulgence and intoxication, none of those things, but just simply to have a drink and enjoy that with your meal. You have that freedom, but how do you discern when you're in that place if you, do, if you should act on that freedom? Where should you go? Well, namely, I would say your conscience. Remember last week, do not betray your conscience. It's always a matter of conscience. If your conscience in that moment tells you, maybe I shouldn't today, well, you shouldn't. If it is unclean for you, it is unclean. But if we're mindful of who may be around us in proximity to us, and we have that, that urge within us to abstain in that moment for certain church, we should be willing to abstain and forego that preference in that moment to be considerate for those that may be around us. And number two, verse 22. says, The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. He says, Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. So here we should be convinced is the second thing. But the faith you have, keep between yourself and God. That's not the idea of this is my faith and my faith is always between me and God. You can't say anything about it. I do whatever I want. That's not the idea. But what we can take away from this is when you're in the privacy of your own home and you understand the freedom you have in Christ, in its fullness, act on that freedom. That is your space. You have the freedom to do that thing while you're at home. Being fully convinced in your own mind. Verse 5. He says, blessed is the one. The word blessed simply means happy. How do you and I have a happy life? Well, we have a happy life when we understand and we approve properly the freedom we have. We don't have any reason to pass judgment on ourselves. So when we're in the privacy of our home, in our own space, we act and live within the freedom that we have in Christ. But be fully convinced on that thing. And approves. Here is the verb form of the word approved by men. It's dokimatso. It's you and I should with deep careful consideration, examine our motives, examine what we're doing, examine the situation to approve that we're acting correctly. Be convinced is the point. Now, again, if we're unsure on any particular matter, where should convincing come from? For you and I, church, we've been given three things. We are never alone under heaven on this earth, church. Believer, individual, I'm speaking to you. You are never alone. You were given three things. 
to help you discern what to do in a particular matter. One is you have God's Word. If you and I are unsure on a particular thing, do I really have freedom to do this thing? Well, go to God's Word. Seek His Word on the truth of that matter. Secondly, you have His Spirit. You have the author of that Word to give you understanding of what He's written. Now remember, we're all different degrees within that spectrum. I don't expect you and you shouldn't expect me to understand where you're at or you understand where I'm at based on my reading of God's Word. But we have the same Spirit that wants to teach us those things. So we should seek God's Word. And thirdly, we have His people. If we're unsure on a matter, we seek His Spirit, we seek His Word, and we seek His people. And if those three things are affirming a direction, I think we can have some clarity on where we or our freedoms lie and when or not we should be giving up that freedom. But we should also be considering the impact of what we do. What are the secondary effects of the freedoms that we have or the choices that we make? If I'm in Terrell and I'm at Texas Roadhouse, I'm going to be honest, I'm going to think differently about what I act on in my freedom in that place than I would as if I'm in New York City at a steakhouse. Circumstantially, I'm going to consider the implications and the secondary effects and how I prefer others. And then consider your motivation. Be convinced on what is the motivating factor in acting on the freedom in which you have. And again, that falls to a matter of conscience. Be fully convinced in your own mind. But selfishness is at the heart, is at heart when we are wise in our own eyes. And there is. The biggest challenge for you and I, anyone, is being wise in our own eyes. Proverbs 3, 7, the writer tells us, Do not be wise in your own eyes, but fear the Lord, he says. Now, what is a proper fear of the Lord? What does that get you? Proverbs 1, 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So for you and I, if we want to learn to discern, have wisdom, have knowledge of the right thing to do, when to do it, it's walking with his, peop- with his spirit, being connected in his word, and with his people, But having a proper fear of the Lord, understanding who the Lord is, where he sits, and his lordship over your life, and you are accountable to him, not everyone else. And if you keep him there, you have a proper fear. It's the beginning of knowledge. Then you have that knowledge. You're able to discern what is it you should do in a particular matter. And if we feel him nudging us in such a way or not in such a way, be receptive to that. And then number three. Verse 23, he says, But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So we should be consistent. Match your actions to your convictions. And if in any circumstance you're uncertain, abstain. There's there's no other way to put that for you and I. We should be considerate of others, be convinced ourselves, and be consistent. But if we're uncertain on a matter until there is certainty and we are fully convinced and we're being considerate, he says, abstain. Max Sanders, he, he illustrates the unity that we should have on these matters in, in a very uh, interesting way that I'm going to share with you here as we wrap up. He says this, He says, the famed creator of the Peanuts cartoon strip once had the easygoing Charlie Brown sprawled out watching television when Lucy storms in. 
uh, demanding he change the channel. When Charlie Brown asked meekly what gives her, what gives her the right to uh, make him change the channel, Lucy responds, these five fingers, showing her a clenched fist in front of his nose. Now, after changing the channel, Charlie Brown is seen walking out of the room, holding up his open hand and saying to his fingers, why can't you guys get organized like that? That's a silly illustration from our friend Charlie Brown, but Max Anders notes, he says, there is power in unity, but only in unity characterized by righteousness, peace, joy, love, clear consciences, and a focus on the mission. But when the fingers judge and criticize each other over matters that are non-essential to the hand's mission in life, disorganization and disunity results. Church, there's a unity that exists between the weak and the strong in faith, because we are all believers in Christ, and we should be unified. But there is a disunity that exists whenever we're putting stumbling blocks or we're being stepping stones. Stumbling blocks will create disunity, but stepping stones build up. Next week, we'll look at Paul's final exhortation on this matter to see what's required of believers as we pursue this unity together in the bond of peace. Ephesians 4. But this morning we'll close with this. What makes for disunity? What makes for grievances, judgment, or a destroying of the work of God? These are stumbling blocks, church. That's what makes for disunity. But what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding? Stepping stones. What are these stepping stones? It is righteousness, peace, joy, and walking in love. And to return to verse 13 where we began, you and I must decide it will always be a matter of choice, church. In any matter, it will be choice. We must decide in every matter, in every disagreement, in every circumstance, in every endeavor, in every engagement with someone, in every relationship that we have with a brother and sister for whom Christ died, you and I must decide on whether we're going to be a stumbling block or a stepping stone. And it's not always easy, but it's a decision that is imperative for our body. In every local body, it's imperative for his church. But for you and I, in our context, on the two campuses that we have at Stone Point Church, if we're to change our communities, if we're to change our county in any way, it has to begin in our own hearts to prefer one another, to decide to not be stumbling blocks, not act on the freedom that we have, not to despise one another for their weakness and understanding, but instead to be stepping stones for one another for spiritual growth and upbuilding as we look to God's kingdom, which is surely coming. I pray that we're ready for that, but I pray that we grow. But we don't have to fully understand everyone. We don't have to fully understand where they're at. Understanding will never be a prerequisite for obedience. God calls us to obey his word. His word tells us to be stepping stones for one another. Church, if we do that, we will see this thing move in such a way that lives will be changed. Lives have been changed. I'm so thankful to have been a part of what God has done here for 10 years, more than 10 years, and I look forward to what he continues to do, but that will not happen if we're stumbling blocks to one another instead of stepping stones. And I pray that we're the latter, and we learn how to do that. Amen? Thank you, church. Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you for this morning, and 
the exhortation of your word. Um, Lord, that yes, despite the difficulty of discerning everything, Lord, you've given us your spirit um, to not leave us in a place where we just have to figure this out on our own, Lord. But I pray that we do learn to lean on you. We do learn to, to, to study your word, to walk with you, Lord, to discern and understand what you have for us, Lord. I pray that we, we learn to lean on one another, to trust one another. I pray that you would call everyone in this room who is not a member of this body, you would call them to such a commitment, Lord, for their own encouragement, their own upbringing, Lord. I pray, Lord, for our journey groups, those that are in community that have, that have told one another in some way that I trust you to stir me up, to stir me on to love and good deeds, that the work of God would manifest itself in such a way that the kingdom would grow I pray that you give us eyes to see our own weaknesses. And that's to my own heart, Lord, that I would see my ditches. I do want people to point them out and admonish me in a loving way, yes. But, Lord, I want to see and know those things that I may grow for those things. And I want to learn how to give preference in all matters because I have opinions. I pray that we all would seek to do such a thing for your glory, Lord, for the growth of this body, for the good of all believers. What a wonderful wonderful thing you've given us, Lord. I pray that the responsibility of taking that on with you, to be included in your plan, your work of God, the salvation of this world, Lord, you've called us to be a part of. Would that fall on our hearts, Lord? That we would love one another here. If we're to love one another anywhere, let it be here. We're all your children. We sing such things. For you, Lord, have paid it all. What a wonderful, encouraging truth, Lord, that you didn't leave us where we're at, but I pray that we don't stay where we moved to. Oh, Lord, would you move us from where we're at to where you desire for us to be, Lord. And that is according to your spirit, your word, and your people loving one another well, Lord. And I pray that and ask that. Lord, it's in your name that we pray and ask that. Amen.